Well, with that, we are going to get into God's Word today in just a few minutes. We are going to be talking about sexuality today and sexual purity today. I need thee every hour. I need thee, Lord. And so, before we go into our passage in Matthew's Gospel, I want to build some foundation of this subject. And really it starts where the foundation for just about every subject in the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, the first verse, we read uh, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And chapter 1 of Genesis is this beautiful unwrapping of how God creates day by day, this wonderful creation that he creates. And over and over again, we see this phrase in Genesis 1, after God creates something, he steps back and looks at it, and he says, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And so we see this repeated over and over again. And we come to the sixth day of creation. And God creates the very pinnacle of his creation. Man and woman created on the sixth day. Those who are said to be made in the image and the likeness of God. God creates man and woman, and at the end of the sixth day, God steps back and looks at the whole creation. He looks at man and woman, and the Bible says, and God saw all that he created, and he said, it is very good. Not just good, but God looks back on the fullness of his creative work, and he says, I am the bomb, y'all. Look what I did. It is very good. And so he looks at this. But Genesis 2 gives us a different picture of creation. It's going on the inside mostly of day 6 in Genesis 2. And it's talking about the creation of man and woman. And so we are arrested. After we begin reading in in chapter 2 about God creating this beautiful garden in the east. What we know as the Garden of Eden. It, it, we're arrested in verse 18. We're in this still pristine, perfect, and sinless creation. We see these words. We see for the first time that it's not good. There's been no sin. There's been no disruption in the creative order. And yet God says it's not good. What is he speaking to? Most of you know. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Some of my brothers can say, you got that right, Lord. It's not good for the man to be alone. And so we see that there was the creation of Adam uh, before the creation of Eve as as it's related to us in Genesis chapter 2. And it's not good for the man to be alone. And so what God does is, is he says this, it's not good for the man to be alone, um, so I will make him a helper suitable for him. Amen. That's what God said. So he, he uses this terminology. The first word there is helper. Now I know some ladies are going to get offended. I am not just his little helper. I am so much more than that. You should not get offended by that word helper. In Hebrew, it's easer. 
And helper suitable is ezer kenigdo. And the word helper that's used there does not mean a lackey who is less than and subservient to. That's not what it means. As a matter of fact, almost every other time the word ezer is used in the Hebrew Bible, it is used of God himself. It's used of God saying, God is the Ezer of Israel. He is the Ezer Israel. He is the helper of Israel. So it is a term that is clothed with dignity. It is clothed with power. It's not a lesser than subservient term. And then God says, not only that, but I'll make her a, a helper. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Kenigdo, that term means corresponding to one with, one on one with him. It's beautiful as the, the, the uh, chapter plays out. God does this work of putting Adam into this operating room. He puts him to sleep, right? Now remember he does that after Adam had just had the, the, the task of naming all the animals in creation. So I don't know how long that took. I don't know what what that was like. But Adam is like, okay, long neck, funky little ears, giraffe. Next, you know, uh, what is that crazy looking tail over there? And and he looks like he has a mask on. That's a raccoon. I know that's a raccoon. So he goes through all of this creative work. And then God puts him in surgery. He puts him to sleep. The Bible says that he takes a rib out of Adam's side. Now that should tell us something. He did not take out bone out of Adam's foot, y'all. He took a rib out of Adam's side. And he forms, the Bible says, he forms the woman out of the rib of the man. And Adam wakes up from his slumber. And he does not see a rhinoceros. He does not see a llama. He sees Eve. And You can see it in the text of the Bible. Adam gets real happy right here. Adam's not just, okay, that's woman, next. No. Adam says, oh, hallelujah, glory to God. I believe he he really started to know God right there. He said, this, this, this right here. Check it out, y'all. I don't know who you're talking to, but check it out, y'all. This is bone of my bone. Hallelujah, glory. This is flesh of my flesh. And he says, this shall be called, whoa, man, did you see her? Adam got happy, y'all. And the Bible tells us as you go to the end of Genesis 2 that Adam and his wife, it says they're both naked and they're not ashamed. The two will become one flesh. God prophesies there. The man will leave father and mother. There weren't any fathers and mothers yet, but he'll leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And in Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was nothing to come between them emotionally. There was nothing to come between them materially. There was nothing to come between them sexually. There was perfect union between man and woman and their God. Unfortunately, Genesis 3 comes right after Genesis 2. 
And we know that that is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, which plunged us all. All of creation is plunged into sin. And when sin enters now, there is an issue in relationship not only between man and God, but between Adam and Eve. There's a problem in relationship. Shame enters in. Guilt enters in. What happens when they sin? They hide themselves from God and from one another. And this terrible tragedy of the fallenness of humankind is unraveling before our eyes in Genesis chapter 3. And we see the rest of this beautiful book. The scripture is telling us how God is bringing restoration, but it is a restoration from severe brokenness. And we would be wrong if we think that that brokenness does not get right down into our sexuality. It does. And and it causes great damage among people Everywhere, and we would be wrong if we think, well, now I know Jesus, so now I'm all better. I don't think there are all better people in this room right now. So, in the scripture we're about to read in Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 30, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to purity in our sexuality so that we might use our bodies. To glorify him. So let's stand together as we read the scripture today. Reading from the NIV, that's what's on the board. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Let's read. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Title for today's sermon is Jesus Style Purity. It's a high call. It's a wonderful call. And it is a call for every single one of Jesus' disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you will be with us in these coming moments as we look at your word. Lord, you know where brokenness is. You know where it's come from in general ways and in particular ways in each one of our lives. We pray, Lord God, that you will be with us today and that you will speak to our hearts and draw us to yourself that you might be greatly glorified through our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're looking at the second of six instances in Matthew 5 where Jesus teaches about the proper interpretation of the Jewish law. Two weeks ago, we talked about 
the, the, the law of anger and murder. And we looked at how that was revealed by Jesus. That our, our anger, the intents of our thought, he equates with murder. In verses 21 through 26. In these verses today, we're going to see a very similar pattern to what we saw in those verses where he is letting us know that the very intentions of our minds and our hearts, God says, equate to the activity itself. Now, in the scripture that we're looking at today, this is not a comprehensive lesson on everything to deal with sexuality. Jesus gives in in here a few verses which takes less than a minute to read. So that's all that he's looking at. This is a a, a short statement. It's like the Cliff's Notes that every disciple of Jesus needs to know about sexuality. And so he outlines in these verses a foundational understanding that we need to know and live by. So here's the simple point for today. The one overarching point is this. Disciples of Jesus are called to live in sexual purity. That's across the board. Everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are called to live in sexual purity. Again, verses 27 and 28, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He is giving the commandment, the seventh commandment in the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 20. And then he is telling us what this really means for citizens of the kingdom of God. There's three primary lessons that we're going to look at from these verses today. Number one, sexual immorality is an issue of the heart. Number two, even lustful thoughts deserve divine punishment. And three, drastic measures should be taken to avoid sexual sin. So let's look at these one at a time. First of all, sexual immorality is an issue of the heart. Verse 28, he says that a man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he is establishing the reality that this sin doesn't happen on the outside of us through an action, but just like he established with anger and murder, it happens on the inside of us, in his heart. But we want to make sure that we understand exactly what he's talking about here. The word that he uses for lust in this verse means to have a strong desire, in this case, in this context, to be sexually involved with another person. Now let's be clear about also what it does not mean. It is not merely a sense of appreciation of beauty. It's not just that. It is not even simply a sense of attraction between one person and another. It is much more than that. It is not that. The actual word he uses here, epithemeo is the Greek word, implies a motivation of the heart to move towards sin. 
the word expresses a desire to act in a way to bring sexual fulfillment to myself using another person who is not married to me. So verse 32, later on in this chapter, uses another word, sexual immorality, that we often see in the New Testament writings and talking about this. That is the Greek word pornea. You can tell we get our word pornography from that word. It it talks about finding sexual satisfaction outside of the God-ordained means which is marriage between one man and one woman. Now, I don't want to get us off track here into things that this scripture is not dealing with. I want us to pay attention to ourselves. Amen? To my life, to my personal struggle here today. Because this addresses every disciple of Jesus. And so as we look at this point, we see that sexual immorality is a matter of the heart, not just the physical act. And so maturing disciples are those who repent, not just for something that I've done, but even for things that are going on in my mind. So let's look at three implications of this from these verses. First of all, maturing disciples understand that their sin hurts God. Sometimes we need to let that sit for a while. Maturing disciples understand my sin hurts God. Now someone might say, you can't hurt God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immovable. He is unchangeable. He is God and King, and nothing can impact him. But if we look at the pages of this book, at the Bible, over and over again, we see God using anthropomorphic language. That is language which mirrors our emotions so that we can understand who God is. And in Ephesians 4.30, he puts it this way, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Maturing disciples understand that their sin hurts God. Secondly, maturing disciples do not excuse their sin based on technicalities. There's not an attempt to blame others. Look what happened in Genesis 3. It was the woman, God, that's what Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me. He blames Eve and he blames God himself for his sin. But maturing disciples don't excuse their sin based on others or based on technicalities. They're not trying to get off and get a lesser sentence. We'll talk more about this a little bit later, but... Maturing disciples are able to realistically look at their sin in the light of the holiness of God. It's not like I want to be in a pretty dark place so my sin doesn't look so bad. No, living in the light, as John says in 1 John chapter 1, living in the light means coming to a greater awareness, not a lesser awareness of my sin, because I'm in the light of Jesus. Thirdly, maturing disciples are serial repenters. This means that maturing disciples become more and more and more aware of every place in their heart where they're out of step with God. And they're quick to confess and repent. Serial repentance 
is a mark of every maturing disciple of Jesus Christ. So before I go further, let me just say this. If you don't think that this has direct application to your life, then you are not a maturing disciple. Whether or not you deal with this particular sin in your life, Jesus is teaching you that the source of sin is not something outside of you. Jesus is teaching that your sin is not measured merely by your outward actions. Jesus is teaching his disciples that the source of our sin is a fallen heart and God is after your heart and my heart. Sometimes the Bible refers to our fallen nature or our sinful nature as the flesh. I don't know about the rest of you, but for a long time I was looking to find a way for my flesh to get better. But I found out from the scripture that making the flesh better is not God's agenda at all. You can be a Christian from now until Jesus comes back, whenever that is, whether that's next Tuesday or a thousand years from now, and your flesh will not get one iota better than it was when you first came to Christ. Your flesh doesn't love God, won't love God, and isn't getting better at all. God's agenda for the flesh is not to make it better, but it's to kill it. Over and over again, we see that in the scripture. It's not reformation, it is death and resurrection and new life. The second truth from these verses is this. Even lustful thoughts deserve divine punishment. Verses 29 and 30 warn us that the proper punishment for adultery, which includes lustful indulgence, says is the fire of hell. You see that at the end of verse 29. You see that at the end of... Of verse 30, it is the ultimate judgment. That is what that sin deserves. Jesus is not grading here on a curve. Many of you, I know I have had favorite teachers who grade on a curve. Has anyone ever had that? You just know you're failing the class. You just know, like you're getting your grades back 53. Like, well, I got over half of them right. I feel kind of good. No, you don't feel good. You just got a 53. You know that's an F in any grading scale, right? So you know that you're messing up, but you've got this teacher who decides at the end of the semester, I'm going to grade this thing on a curve, and all of a sudden, your F becomes a B plus, And you are one happy dude or dudette. You are just thrilled all of a sudden. Look, at, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. I'm pretty good. I got a B plus. Uh, what was your grade? Well, 52, but I got a B plus. I feel kind of good about that. And we can kind of think that God, that grace is God grading on a curve. Doesn't that sound good? Maybe it does. Maybe it really doesn't. It's kind of wacky. It is actually the opposite of what God does. God's not grading on a curve. Sin, any part of sin comes under divine punishment, it comes under uh, God's divine 
anger and his wrath because sin is against a holy and perfect God. And so God does not grade on a curve. It's actually the opposite of a curve. Let me use this example. Let's say you have a friend who has like a real problem in his life. And your friend confides in you his adulteries. And he's always confiding another weekend, another woman, another situation. And over time, there's like a hundred different women that your friend has been with while he's still married to his wife. His life is a mess. And you say, man, I've never, ever committed adultery. Then you've got another friend who struggles and has been struggling for years with pornography and he tells you of his struggle and he's working through it. Um, he's struggling with it, but he doesn't seem to get victory. And you say, man, my friend, he just really struggles with that. I've never struggled with that myself. The only thing I really struggle with is sometimes indulging in sexual fantasies, but I've never committed adultery. I've never touched another woman the wrong way. I've never given myself over to pornography or these other things. My poor friends, they really, really need help. Here's the reality. What does God do with that? God says you're in the exact same place they are. Your need is not one iota less than their need. As a matter of fact, if your friend who has committed a hundred adulteries understands his sin, turns to God in repentance and says, Lord, I am sorry, save me and help me. I admit that this is sin and I'm a broken man and I need you. That man is now closer to God than you are if you don't recognize what you're doing as sin that needs to be paid for by the cross of Christ. It's not a curve that he grades on. It's a, res- a reverse curve that even sees that you're what we might be tempted to call our little sins deserve the punishment of God. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, why is this so? Why is this so? It's so and it's true because God is pure, he's righteous, and he is holy. It's true because God has created us in his image and likeness. And God has created us as sexual beings in part to demonstrate his love for us. The faithful love of a man and a woman in marriage is meant to portray to this world the love of Jesus Christ for his church. We see that in Ephesians 5 and verse 32. The mystery of marriage is that it is to reveal the faithfulness of God for his bride that he so loves. So therefore, as his disciples, we don't make excuses. We don't look down on others. We admit our sin and we look to God alone who can purify us from anything and everything in us that is not like him. We accept the divine reality that deviations from God's perfect purity deserve punishment. Now, Here's the third lesson from this passage. 
passage teaches us that drastic measures should be taken to avoid sexual sin. Drastic measures should be taken. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. I don't know, you got to do like a gouge, but you got to catch it when you gouge it and then throw it away. That's a hard act, y'all. Then if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. I guess you got to catch it with your left hand. I, I don't know how you cut it off and catch it with your, I don't know how that works, or if it falls to the ground and then you throw it away. I don't know how that works, but that's pretty radical stuff. Now, there's some good news here is that I do not believe that God means us to do this literally. Somebody say amen. amen. Somebody with two eyes and two hands say amen. amen. If, if, if that was true that it was meant to be literal, we'd all be one-handed, one-eyed, at least the dudes in this place. I know you would. And look, if we really want to extrapolate a little more, you know that the other guy's got to go too, right? That other hand, that you're going to have to cut that one off too. And now that we got all this technology, we can find out the parts of our brain that are just firing wrong at the wrong time. So we got to start slicing up that brain too with all our technology if we take it literally. Thank God this is not literal here. But Jesus is using hyperbole to get a point across. When I, when I think about this, I, I thought about a movie. Some of you know this old movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And you know, there's a scene in that movie with the Black Knight who is standing and guarding this little stream. It's a river and a bridge, but it's actually just like a little stream with a board over it. You could just walk over it, but he's guarding the bridge. And King Arthur comes up to the knight and he says, he he compliments the knight, how great the knight is, and says, and so let me pass. And the black knight says, no man shall pass this bridge. And so King Arthur doesn't want to fight him, but they begin to engage in a sword fight because the knight won't let him pass the bridge. And what happens in the sword fight is after a little while, he lops off his left arm and you just see blood coming out of the arm. And King Arthur's like, okay, now just let me go. And the knight is like, no way, you can't go. You still can't go. He says, it's just a scratch. He says, no, that's your arm on the ground. It's just a scratch. And he continues to fight him just with one arm. And he's wielding his sword not very well because it's a big sword. and He just has one arm. But eventually the other arm gets lopped off. And so now he has no arms. King Arthur says, now it's time for me to go across this bridge. And the knight says, no, the fight is on. And he starts to kick him with his feet. The king is like, are you kidding me? Are you serious now? And so he eventually has to take out the sword and he lops off one of his legs. And now the knight is is hopping around and hitting him with his helmet. And eventually he lops off his other leg and he's a little stump of a man. Two arms, he says, it's a flesh wound. And at the very end, when he has no arms and no legs, and Arthur's walking by him, he says, you're a coward. Come back here. I will bite your legs off. Listen, brothers and sisters, that is crazy. That is foolish. But when we minimize the reality of our sexual sin, we are as pathetic as that night. 
we're living in a total unwillingness to face what is real. Jesus calls us not to ignore or minimize our sin, but to face it head on with our eyes wide open. The good news for us today is that Jesus is not trying to get you chopped up for his glory. Hallelujah. Definitely not. Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point crystal clear to his disciples. Stay as far away from sin as you can. Don't play with it. Jay Adams uses a term that that I love. It's helpful for this. His term is radical amputation. And I define the term this way. Radical amputation, the driving desire to glorify God that leads maturing disciples to cut out of their lives anything that they see is likely to cause them to move towards sin and away from God. This is knowing your kryptonite and removing it as far from you as possible. The idea here of radical amputation is important is an important one for us, but it must not just be a theoretical term. The question that each one of us needs to ask, honestly, in our own lives, is what does that mean specifically for me? In other words, you need to know what your kryptonite is. Brothers and sisters, I see this over and over again. People not losing a battle with lust because they're weak. That's not why we lose this battle. We lose the battle because we think we're stronger than we are. We cuddle up to our kryptonite and think it'll be just fine. But it doesn't work. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, there was a show that came on Netflix and... I don't even remember the name of it. That's probably a good thing. But some of my friends were really into this show. Now, my friends who were strong Christians, people that I love, admire, have a great deal of respect for, they were really into this show. And and they would even have parties to watch the show. And I'm like, I want to be in on this, John, right? So I want to check this thing out. I need to see this show and, and get into all of what's going on with it. So I remember... Uh, Harriet and I sitting down saying, we're going to watch this show. And we watched the show. I watched it for about 30 minutes. I said, that is not my show. I know that can't be my show. Why couldn't it become my show? I knew that it wasn't my show because there was enough sexuality in that show in a way that triggered me in bad ways. I knew that about myself. And I said, this There might be a whole bunch of good stuff about this show, but this just can't be my show. Now listen, I didn't put that show away because I'm such a strong Christian. I did it because I'm such a weak person. I understood my weakness, and I understood that if I indulged my weakness, then very likely that would lead me down a path. I knew the path that it would lead me down to where my lust would overtake me and God would not be honored in my life. I didn't stop it because I was strong. I stopped it because I knew I was weak. And let me be clear about this. I'm not saying anything about my friends who watch the show. 
that might not have been their kryptonite. So I'm not judging them for watching a show that they could watch. I just, because, look, I have no heaven or hell to put anyone else in. I just knew that for me, this ain't good. And that is the kind of thing that we need to do as we deal with our own hearts. Here's the question that each of you needs to ask yourself. Where do I need to practice the principle of radical amputation? Where do I need to practice that principle in my own life? Are there apps that you have too much appetite for? Are there social media sites that you know aren't good for you? Are there video games, comics, movies? Are there other virtual worlds that you know are not good for you? We need to be honest with ourselves. Be honest with yourself on this. Let me put this into three P's to summarize it. Are there programs you watch, people you're around, or places that you go, whether real or virtual, that nurture your lust and subtly lead you away from God. Slow down. Think about that for a minute. Think of the who's, the what's, and the where's in your life that subtly move you away from God. I'm glad that I'm not a teenager in 2018. Can someone else over 40 or 50 say amen to that? We we, we got to pray for our young folks and and young folks coming up because this is a different world, y'all. They're exposed to stuff that I was never exposed to as a child. And I don't know what it's like for that onslaught to happen in my life when I have not matured enough to deal with any of that. Yet they have to deal with all of these things. But let let me be real clear about this. My desire is that no one comes back next week with an eye patch or a prosthesis. That's not what we want next week. I'm hoping to avoid that. But I do hope that over the coming weeks, we may hear stories, I may hear stories, of people cutting some things off from their life. Radically cutting things off. Even things that might be fine for other people, but you know this is my kryptonite. Let me encourage you this way. Don't be afraid to look weird or to look prudish to others because you can't engage in some things that don't really seem so bad. Some of us know, I know there's some things that come on that TV that no one would think is any big deal, and I just know... I can't look at that for a minute. It could be a commercial. You know what your kryptonite is. Deal with it. We need to take inventories of our lives and see the things that we can easily indulge in that we need to get away from. Radical amputation. I pray that God will make, that that many people here will make God-honoring ampulatory moves, that's a new word I made up, ampulatory moves that allow you to find real freedom in Jesus Christ. Let's wrap this up. I want to use an example that the Lord has 
helped me with a great deal. The end of this chapter summarizes all that Jesus is saying. And he says that he writes these things. Verse 48 of this chapter. Be perfect, he says, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Look, God didn't call you because you were perfect. If that was true, none of us would be called. But we've got to deal with the fact that God is calling us somewhere. Not just to stay where we're at. He's calling us to this perfection. God is calling us to that. And listen, believers and disciples of Jesus Christ are not people who are satisfied. I'm 83% perfect. I'm good. Matter of fact, people that are serious about their walk with Jesus are going to give them a lower score than other folks, probably. Beware of someone who thinks that they're 98% on the perfection scale. Watch out for that person. Years ago, I read this book. Some of you may have read it called Every Man's Battle. How many people have read that book? It's a good book. A helpful book. It gave a lot of strategies to avoid and to, 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 to live in such a way that that we are avoiding lustful things or things that inflame us towards lust. It was a helpful book, but I remember at the end of it just still feeling this gap in my heart. I'm missing something. It's not a problem with the writer. It's not a problem from the outside, but there's a problem on the inside of me. And I remember some months later, uh, after reading the book, Just in my own reading, I was reading through the book of Romans and I came to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And this gave me such a great help and consolation. It helps me to this very day. That verse reads this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I'll go through this quickly, but that verse starts with a therefore. And you know, exegetically, you've always have to ask, what is it therefore, right? So when you see that therefore in this verse, he's pointing back to the rest of the book, the rest of the book where God has laid out through Paul, the fact that we are all in great need. We are all sinful before God, no matter where we come from, no matter what our lineage is, no matter what our family is, We are in desperate need of God, but God has provided a means of salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we can access that by His grace through faith in Christ. And then He reveals to us in Romans 8 in particular the power of the Holy Spirit that He gives us to help us overcome sin and grow in Christ. And in verse, in chapter 12, he's beginning a section where he tells us now, how do we live with one another as those who have been bought with the blood of Christ? And he says, therefore, looking back in view of God's mercy, he says, offer your bodies as living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Brothers and sisters, this broke something inside of me because I saw something for the first time. That my body is a creation of God that he has designed in his image and likeness in order that he might be glorified through it. 
This is an instrument of worship. And he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word is so strange because sacrifices, we know from the Old Testament, you kill the sacrifice, then you put it on the altar. And a dead sacrifice on an altar ain't going nowhere. But he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so what I began to see in this verse, that God was calling me to a life of worship with my body. With how I use the members of my body. And when I choose to indulge lust, when I choose to look at the created creature and worship that, I am no longer worshiping the true God, but I'm worshiping a false God. What I realized... This, I realized that when I make that decision to dishonor God, it is as if I am taking another nail and pounding it through the hand of my Lord. It is as if I'm putting another crown of thorns on his head. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1.25. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And listen to this. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. When we give into lust, we are now worshipping created things rather than the creator. Brothers and sisters, your sexuality, my sexuality is so important because it reveals the truth about our worship. When we choose to focus our sexual energies in ways that honor God, it's an act of worship. When we allow ourselves to focus our energies anywhere else, we're worshiping a false god. Good news is this, Jesus gives every one of his disciples the Holy Spirit so that we have the power to resist the impulse of lustful sin. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then you have everything you need now to, go, to grow towards sexual integrity and sexual purity All those years ago, Adam and Eve fell into false worship. They fell into sin. They minimized their sin. They hid from God and one another. And they blamed anyone but themselves. God is giving us, through these verses, and as he shines his light on us, an opportunity to do the opposite of what happened in that garden. We take full ownership. It's my sin. It's not someone else, what they did. It's me. God, it's not you. And I can make it known. In other words, I can find somebody that I can talk with, someone I can have accountability with, someone who can know what's going on in my life. I don't have to live a life of hiding anymore, but I can live in the light of Jesus Christ. And by the grace and the power of Almighty God, repent and repent and repent some more and see what God will do. 
There is freedom that God offers us in Jesus Christ, even from the most besetting of our sins. Glory be to God. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you today for your great grace that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray that you would move in the hearts of each one under the sound of my voice today. That we would be moved to do a thorough inquiry into our own hearts, our own minds. And that, Lord, as you pinpoint places where we need to make new decisions that you will help us, not just by the power of our willpower, because that only works for so long, but by the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome so that your name might be glorified in our lives. Lord, we thank you for it. We ask for your grace upon us in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.